Hello, all you creepy geniuses and kindred spirits. Yes, just you guys. Y'all are the ones who pay the big bucks for the exclusive access to exclusive content. And Kimberly and I are so stoked to announce we finally got enough of you to post these extra stories. And if you're into secretly stashed dead bodies and fabulous queer icons, which we definitely are. You're going to love this extra story today. I don't know about you, but life's been kind of a drag lately. It's cold. It's dark. Many of us have lost people we love in one way or another in the last several months. If you watch the news, you're probably feeling like we're all surrounded by villains all the goddamn time. Now, while I don't want to dismiss anyone's valid concerns about the bad people in the world, some folks, truly, they are just irredeemable pieces of shit, and your feelings about them, they're normal. I do want to throw out there that it's possible it only feels like you're surrounded by villains, because the media and humans in general, they're just so binary by default. We have a collective bad habit of looking at a thing and needing it to simply just be good or bad, safe or dangerous, the best or the worst. It makes us feel smart and secure when we can easily categorize things, quarantine the bad stuff, and then move on. Our brains, they're not designed to make us happy. They're designed to keep us safe. Unfortunately, Unfortunately, almost nothing is either good or bad. Most things, and certainly most people, are a combination of both. Our primitive little monkey minds may love when things are binary, but almost none of us are. Which means the majority of society is running around holding each other to impossible standards. Standards we can't even meet ourselves. I've been thinking a lot about this lately. I've been thinking about how much easier life would be for all of us if we could just break free of this weird, primal need for everything to just be one thing or the other. And then I came across this story, which almost perfectly demonstrates how non-binary, how in the gray, the vast majority of people really are. And how beautiful that can be when we give each other a little grace. Plus, it's got drag queens. Which, if you've ever seen any of the work Kimberly and I have done on stage together, you already know. That makes it a winner in my book. Let's get into this. Years before RuPaul's Drag Race propelled gender impersonation into our homes as mainstream television, the art of drag took on several forms. The first person to describe himself as the queen of drag was William Dorsey Swan, an enslaved man who started hosting drag balls in the 1880s. As a result, 
Drag was developed in minstrel shows for a brief time, since white performers, they, they thought it amusing to mock African-American femininity. These minstrel shows, as culturally uncouth as they were, became the foundation of what would eventually become vaudeville. The popularity of vaudeville allowed many female impersonators to work their way out from low performers into show-stopping divas. Despite this, being a female impersonator was seen as something strictly for straight white males, and any deviation was punished. The famous balls of Greenwich Village and Harlem were a taboo, a hot secret reserved for those with a taste for adventure. Connection with sex work and homosexuality eventually led to the decline of vaudeville during the progressive era, and from there, drag descended into the shadows. As the country and its dominantly Christian populace expanded, gay Americans in the 1950s and 60s faced an overwhelmingly anti-gay legal system. Very few establishments welcomed gay people, and those that did were often darkened bars. The FBI and police departments kept lists of known homosexuals, and eventually, local governments began shutting down any business that catered to gays and lesbians. Customers of gay establishments, they were arrested and exposed in newspapers, leading to job loss, shunning, and broken families. This sort of social landscape led to the Cooper Donuts Riot of 1959. Ten years before Stonewall, a tiny cafe in downtown Los Angeles named Cooper Donuts sat nestled between two gay bars, Harold's and Waldorf's. Both were popular hangouts for gay folks. But at the time, it was illegal to walk the streets of Los Angeles if your gender presentation did not match the gender on your ID. For this reason, many gay bars banned transgender patrons and cross-dressers from entering. Cooper Donuts, however, welcomed the outcasts, which also made it a target for consistent police harassment. But in May 1959, during a routine arrest of two drag queens, two male sex workers, and a gay man, those present began protesting the lack of space for these individuals in the back of the police car. Many historians believe that this is the first recorded incident of the LGBTQ community rising up to say, not today, Satan. Arrestees and patrons alike went apeshit, throwing coffee and donuts at the cops until they actually fled. From there, people took to the streets, and the rioting lasted until dawn. Drag was more readily embraced during the age of Andy Warhol and Studio 54, but not until the 1980s did it fabulously explode from the shadows, sowing seeds of what would eventually blossom into the celebrated art form we know today. 
By this point, drag balls or ball culture was emerging as a counterculture phenomenon. Balls were part of the African-American and Latin American underground LGBTQ subculture that originated in New York City. Here, people would walk for trophies, prizes, and glory. Ball culture consists of events that mix performance, dance, lip-syncing, and modeling. Contestants are represented by their respective houses, otherwise described as alternative families for those seeking solace after being kicked out of their old homes for being homosexual. Houses are led by, quote, mothers or, quote, fathers, who are usually older members of the ballroom scene, and typically drag queens, gay men, or transgender women. These adopted parental figures provide guidance and support for their house children. And one of the most famous of those houses was the house of Corey. Dorian Corey was born in 1937, raised as a farm boy in Buffalo, New York, a life she did not want or need. In the 1950s, she worked as a window dresser at a department store before running off to the big city to pursue brighter lights. She studied at the Parsons School of Design, parlaying her gifts into a job as a costumer and eventually found her footing as a performer herself. In the 1960s, Corey toured as a snake dancer in the Pearl Box Review, a cabaret drag act. Her experience led her to mentor and support young queens as her drag family's mother, the House of Corey. Corey was a steadfast diva. A light-skinned person of color, she dazzled audiences with big hair, bright red lips, and luxurious accessories. At one point, Corey's act involved her wearing a 30 by 40 foot feather cape. Once she shed her costume down to a sequined body stocking, Two attendants raised the cape up on poles to produce a feathered tent covering half the audience. Her shows were always sold out, and she seemed to command the respect of her peers. Her house held over 50 grand prizes from balls. She ran a clothing line known as Corey Design. And she received some of her widest acclaim after starring in the 1990 documentary, Paris is Burning. In interviews, she was funny, realistic, and unflappable. Dorian Corey was the toast of the LGBTQ community of New York City. And in modern times, one of the inspirations for the hit TV series, Pose. But even the brightest stars will someday fade. On August 29th, 1993, Dorian Corey died of AIDS-related complications at Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center in Manhattan. After her passing, Lois Taylor, a fellow drag queen and caretaker to Corey in her final days, began selling the star's costumes. One day, 
she and a few other ball children sifted through piles of fabric, feathers, and sequins that somehow still felt warm from the afterglow of one of Dorian's bygone performances. Wigs of all cuts and colors had to be boxed up and divided. They then moved to a large closet where the sight of a musty green plaid garment bag folded over caught their attention. Try as she might, Lois couldn't lift this garment bag, so she cut it open and was hit with what she described as a horrible stink. Choosing not to risk it, she called the police right then and there. Peeling through multiple layers of fabric, taped wrappings and plastic, detectives eventually revealed a horrific sight. A mummified body curled up in the fetal position. Its complexion was that of a day-old bruise. Its ears were crumpled and dried, clothes tattered, and most notably, there was a bullet hole in its head. Pulling fingerprints from the corpse, they identified the mummy as Robert Worley, who had last been seen in 1968. Questions abounded. Why might have Corey committed this murder? What was her relationship with Robert Worley? Why did she preserve the body? Allegedly, a note was attached to the body that said, quote, this poor man broke into my home and was trying to rob me. However, a reporter for New York Magazine was able to find clues as to the relationship. Worley's brother, Fred, claimed that Bobby had called him while drunk and rambled on about someone named Dorian. The likelihood is that Corey and Worley had a troubled romantic relationship that ended tragically. According to Taylor, Corey wrote a short third-person story about a transgender woman who killed her lover after they pressured her into having gender reassignment surgery. Handwritten, the story seemed somewhat autobiographical and possibly very telling. Corey had breast augmentation and perhaps had taken female hormones. The story was full of references to her life including the Pearl Box Review. Whatever happened between the two of them, we can only imagine that their relationship was riddled with challenges due to their marginalized roles in society. Both were born men of color in a country that saw them as second-class citizens, if they even saw them at all. Both failed to fit into that simple, easy binary that humans love to force each other into. Both had to face unfathomable amounts of abuse, aggression, and judgment. America made very little space for individuals such as themselves, and it's for these reasons that Corey chose to keep a literal skeleton in her closet, curled up inside a garment bag. Law enforcement and the judicial system, well, they do not value black bodies the same way. And in the 1970s and 80s, they outright despised black, gender non-conforming bodies. If Corey had been acting in some kind of self-defense when Robert died, there was zero chance she could count on the judicial system to do right by her. And if she ended up in prison, well, 
that would have essentially been the death penalty if the world she lived in had been a little less binary, just a bit more kind and accepting, perhaps she could have called the police without fearing for her own life. Regardless of the murder, Corey's legacy remains essential to the transgender drag and ballroom communities, particularly in the development of voguing made famous by Madonna as a cornerstone of New York ballroom culture still venerated to this day. The support, the guidance, and the inspiration she provided untold numbers of isolated, lonely, and demeaned young gay and queer individuals during her time as a house mother and performer are not erased by a single terrible night when someone clearly made a grave mistake. No one is just one thing, and few people understand that better than Dorian Corey. Fans, friends, and family will always remember her simple philosophy. Quote, Everybody wants to make an impression, some mark upon the world. You don't have to bend the whole world. I think it's better to just enjoy it. Pay your dues and enjoy it. If you shoot an arrow and it goes real high, hooray for you.